Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. For Park Bench on Bank Holiday Monday, John Bellarily asked a question that might just stop you in your tracks. The Queen of still the people say all the time in this country, how are you, without really kind of really answering the question. But if I was to say, how are you, no, really, what would you say? Yes. Feeling very solid. Uh, I've gone, been going through a shedding process, I mean, letting go of stuff, probably connected to the menopause, but there you go, every cloud. I recently did a Kundalini activation. It's kind of the idea of releasing any stuck energy or trauma and I have done some of that work in the past and I feel like my energy is very focused right now. How am I now within myself? Uh, shattered, powerless, and just I'm at the mercy of, of the world. And I feel like I'm inside out. I'm heading to prison, you know? No doubt about it, unless serendipity, you know? That as well is insidiously eating at me, the fear of it, you know? so. That's heavy, and I'm trying to block it out. I suppose, like everybody else, uh, a mixture of things, you know, it's recent bereavements, uh, good times, bad times. So I'm, I'm here, I'm good, I'm happy. Uh, I'm, I have to be aware, I think we should be more aware of the fact that we live in a very privileged place, we live in a very privileged time. I think the narrative out there can be very negative, that we're almost living in a failed state. I don't believe that to be true. Having lived through late 70s, early 80s, some very difficult times here, uh, this is, is, is a sweet spot in our country's situation, our country's development, and compared to other parts of the world, this, this is a good place to be. Everything is not perfect. For me, I have to embrace the goodness now rather than wondering what's coming down, you know, what good things might be coming or what good things might going towards. My mom was dead in her 70s, so, you know, I could be gone. Do you mind me asking how old you are? <laughs> 71. <laughs> It is a beautiful world, isn't it? I mean, I care about our planet and I think, you know, this little blue dot. Look, isn't it a beautiful day? It is a beautiful day. (laughs) Oh, that is quite beautiful and a lovely way to start. And on the same day, spare a thought for Ray Cuddehy on Misha Freshen, the Merry Wallopers in studio. It's like herding cats. What's the next one? Oh, God. Do you know what the next one is? Oh, sort of a love song. Is it me? Yeah, it is you, yeah. This Wake song... up. Hey, hey. Wake up. I, hey. I'm sick of it. I right. am I think all you millennials would want to listen up to this one. No, hey. I'll tell you this one is, thing. It, we're coming in hard with the truth. There's a truth bomb coming here. Yeah. So. This song is a song written by Percy French called Eileen Ogue. And it's actually where Wheat has got the idea for the song Teenage Dirtbag. <laughs> 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 no, but your one in Teenage Dirtbag likes him in the end. Oh, well, it doesn't work out as well. Because do you know what? Go to Iron Maiden. Do you know what? They go to Iron Maiden. Times were harder back in the day. Back then, an Iron Maiden was a torture device. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this, uh, this song's called Eileen Oak. It's by Huitas. Uh, sorry, this song's called Eileen Oak. It's by Percy French. Oh, Eileen Oak. 
Now that me darling's name is true. The barony, her features, they were famous. If we loved her, who was there to blame us? Sure wasn't she the pride of Petrovor? But her beauty made us all so shy. Not a one among us could look her in the eye. Boys, oh boys, now that's the reason why. We're in mourning for the pride of Petrovor. The Berry Wallopers on Misha Fresh and all of that on Bank Holiday Monday. On Tuesday though, heads down, back into the working week. And the news came through of explosions at the Soviet-era Kharkovka Dam in southern Ukraine. James Waterhouse, BBC correspondent in Ukraine, spoke to Keane McCormick on Morning Ireland. How serious is this? Because the facility, facility supplies water to a nuclear power plant. It's it's very serious, I think, for a number of reasons. This is a major dam, the Kakovka Dam, which sits on the southern part of the Dnipro River. And upstream, it's like a sea. It's such a vast body of water. And it's hard to overstate just how much is now appearing to flow through a serious breach on the top of it. Thousands of people towards the river mouth are having to be evacuated. Evacuated. We're told there's only around another four hours before the water becomes critical, according to Ukrainian officials. And further south is the city of, of Herson. What this area also is, is a front line. On the western bank, you have Ukrainian-controlled territory. And on the right, you have land which Russia occupies. And then we get to the question of, well, who did it? Both sides are blaming each other. Russia's been accused of laying explosives there in the past. What Moscow is saying is, is, is that it was caused by shelling. But this has implications for both sides. We've, we've heard what it's doing to local populations. But it also makes it more difficult for Ukrainian forces to cross the river, either across the dam or otherwise, as part of its counteroffensive. But also upstream, there is Europe's biggest nuclear power station. And its six reactors rely on the river's water for its, its cooling system. I don't think there's an immediate danger. But this is, a, is, a, is quite a serious moment um, when all eyes were looking at Ukraine's counteroffensive. And with houses submerged underwater, tens of thousands of people on both sides of the front line faced evacuation from their homes. And hundreds of thousands are without normal access to drinking water. 
On Drive Time, Sarah spoke to UNICEF's representative in Ukraine, Damien Rance. So uh, on the Ukrainian government controlled areas, uh, the authorities have asked for 16 to 17,000 people to be relocated. Uh, and to my knowledge, that's 37 to 40 towns and villages or thereabouts, and possibly more than that, uh, in- including, of course, uh, significant parts of, of uh, Kherson, a major city downstream from the dam. Is is the river still rising at this point or what is the situation? So in Kherson town, for example, Kherson city, the river is still rising. As I said, it's 50 miles downstream from the dam and that river level will uh, likely continue to rise for, for some time yet. Actually, it's the, the river levels, obviously, at the reservoir are falling significantly, which has its own issues as well in terms of water supply to many of the towns uh, and, and cities uh, that, that took their water from there. Kurevri is a, a large city, for example, and, and uh, up to 500,000 people may be affected in terms of, you know, water supplies that are, that are cut uh, because of that reservoir being drained. But in Kherson, for example, the water level is still rising and people are still, there are still reports of people being trapped in their houses or on the roof of their house waiting for evacuation and rescue. On the news at one, Brian spoke to Ukraine's Deputy Foreign Affairs Minister, Emine Jepar. What about the wider and more long-term environmental and ecological impacts of all of this? Now, it's water from the dam, as I understand it, that helps to irrigate large parts of this region of, of southern Ukraine. So is this going to have effects on agriculture, the harvest, farming over the coming months and perhaps beyond? Yes, it might have. I believe the most severe consequence would be to the agriculture in the region. We know, again, from experts that the damage is huge. But then we still have and need some time to understand the scale of this damage. Then the other issue that I believe is important for Ukraine is Crimea, uh, which is Ukrainian peninsula with uh, millions of our our citizens living under occupation. And then there is a risk that there will be a huge lack or deficit of, of drinking water in Crimea. It was for us yet another cynical step when Russian system puts its strategic goals or its perverted ambitions over the coast of life of people. From the news at one. And as the week went on, each side continued to blame the other for the explosion. On Wednesday's Drive Time, Patrick Bury, lecturer in security at the University of Bath. Uh, as we can see, still a blame game going on. President Zelensky blaming what he called Russian terrorists for the largest human-made environmental disaster in Europe in decades. He said explosives have been detonated inside the hydroelectric station, which is under Russian control to impede uh, what, what is expected, this looming counter-offensive. And meanwhile, Moscow then saying Kiev had shelled the dam itself to facilitate troop movements. Who would you believe at this point? I would certainly think it's highly unlikely that Ukraine blew up this dam and I would, you know, eat my hat if it's the case. Uh, I, I would definitely side with Zelensky there. I think having looked at the uh, the pictures, the early pictures of the damage around the the dam, um, there was no sign of blasts and twisted metal, etc. at the top. But that does not at all rule out a explosive laden down in the inside of the dam, uh, which then, of course, with that amount of water behind it, forces a, uh, a structural failure and, you know, quite neatly washes away the evidence. So mm. I'd be much more likely that it's, this is the Russians. From drive time. Meanwhile, over in the United States of America, former President Donald Trump has been indicted by a federal grand jury for retaining classified government documents and obstruction of justice. His response on his truth social platform, I am an innocent man, in shouty block caps. 
From the US, Marion McKeown joined Claire. Well, the news emerged uh, this evening. Uh, Donald Trump got a phone call. He he moves to Bedminster, New Jersey for the summer. It gets a little hot down in Florida, although I suspect it's gotten hotter since he moved there. Um, he uh, got a phone call from one of his lawyers at seven o'clock uh, to Bedminster telling him that he had been indicted and that there were seven separate charges on the indictment. Now, that is all that his lawyers know at the moment, and that's all that Trump knows at the moment. Uh, the indictment will be read out in full on Tuesday uh, in a Miami federal courtroom at three o'clock. That's when it's scheduled for. Now, it's possible that in the meantime, the federal prosecutors and Trump's lawyers may come to an agreement where they will hand them the full indictment. But I think what happened then, and indeed it was predictable, Claire, that Trump decided he was immediately going to control this narrative. So within 20 minutes of finding out, the Department of Justice had said absolutely nothing uh, he he announced it in a three-part post on Truth Social that he had been indicted, and again, you know, in a very dramatic, classic Trump form, and and of course, it it was partly controlling the narrative, partly using it as a demand for more uh, funding, for more online donations. It means now that the Department of Justice, which doesn't really ever and shouldn't deal with its cases in public and shouldn't be playing a media game, but that it's sort of scrambling now because, as I said, Trump has put this out there. The whole of America is pretty much an uproar. Kevin McCarthy came out and made a statement which was riddled with falsehoods, claiming that Joe Biden had indicted Donald Trump, which even a five-year-old in America would know is impossible and untrue. And so it's becoming, there are two battles here. One is a legal battle and one is a political battle. And right now it's the political battle that is being fought. Always with the drama. Now, can you name this creature? The only toad we have in the country that's native to Ireland and it's got that really distinctive look with the yellow stripe down its back. It's a gorgeous little creature. So yeah, we definitely want to keep them around. What is it? No prizes whatsoever. Only the smug satisfaction of being right. But we will play with you and let you know after this. Oh, that's annoying, isn't it? Back in a bit. Welcome back. And the answer, Ireland's only native toad, yellow striped back. It is the Natterjack toad. A dinky name. But if you spot one, lucky you, because they are in decline. Zoology Research Associate at Trinity College, Collie Ennis, joined Sarah. So is it mainly climate change then that's causing them problems? It's a number of factors. Uh, the, the changing in the management of the land around them. They like the dune systems down around there in Kerry, so they're very dynamic systems. And also the water table seems to be dropping with the drier temperatures we're getting. It's kind of nationwide. You can kind of notice it yourself. These, these are all factors that are kind of hitting them from all different angles. And what they love is shallow pools and marshy bogs. But they are in short supply. If the natterjacks are in danger like this, does that apply then to all amphibians? I assume they'd be facing similar challenges. Yeah, well, as I said, I'm, I was down doing newt surveys in Offaly with my colleagues from the Herpetological Society to, uh, the last two days. And we had numerous ponds and entire bogs that were bone dry which is very, very unusual and uh, detrimental to all the tadpoles that would have been mm-hmm. swimming around in those waters. They're all gone. So, yeah, it's, it's the, 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 
the extreme temperature changes now are really kind of becoming very obvious to people who work on the cold front of conservation. It's interesting because, um, you know, we had that report, I think, was it last week about the ecosystems around the world and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the extent to which they're at risk. But you are seeing this on the ground. This is happening right yeah. now. This is not something that's in a report that's going to happen at some stage in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's very strange to be kind of walking through it and witnessing it up close and personal. And this week, another report. An update of the key indicators of climate change since 2019 has found that human-induced warming is increasing at an unprecedented rate of 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade and that annual greenhouse gas emissions are at an all-time high. The scientist who wrote the report said it is critical that policymakers and the public are made aware of how quickly humans are changing the climate and that the scale and pace of climate action has been insufficient. <laughs> the poor natter jack toad. Meanwhile, shock and mega shock in the world of golf. Four. Our Greg Allen was reeling. My God, Greg, I didn't expect this. Did you? Yeah, nearly swerved the car when I heard, actually. <laughs> um, actually, it's ESPN, who were on site at the Canadian Open, which is the event that's on this week, they went up to a player and the player simply said, and this player should know what's going on, no expletive deleted way. Oh, way. It was a merger and it was done and dusted. It is a bombshell. The PGA Tour, the DP World Tour and Live Golf have reached an agreement. Um, they've signed the agreement, in fact. So it's all, the the, the, dry, the ink is dry on this. It combines the public investment funds, golf-related commercial businesses. So the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia funds Live Golf 100%. And it is basically, they are the, the purse string holders and Live Golf is their product. So does Live Golf sort of fade away after this year? That looks like it will be the case because at the moment, the commercial businesses and rights of the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, along with those of the PIF, will be formed into a new collectively owned for-profit entity. No mention that the word live will be used. Might the key word be profit? And given the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, accusations of sport washing. Whatever about those accusations, this now has to be sold to the players, many of whom would have had human rights hearts in their, you know, not that many, mind you, but some of them would have had serious reservations about this. I think Colin Morikawa also has has buckled against this straight away. He's one of the best, world's best players. I love finding out about morning news like this on Twitter, is what his reaction was. And Ben Ann, who's a former BMW PGA Championship, he says, I'm guessing the live teams were struggling to get sponsors and the PGA Tour couldn't turn down the money. Win-win for both tours. But this is what he says at the end. It's a big lose for those who defended the tour for the last two years. Well, McElroy being a key member well, of those. A, a By the way, Phil tomorrow. Nicholson has said, awesome day for golf. On Morning Ireland, Mary spoke to Tarek Panja, global sports correspondent with the New York Times. And the money involved in all of this is quite spectacular. The Saudis, in luring the likes of Mickelson and Kopka and the others to their side, paid huge amounts of um, money, something they've got a lot of, to, to get them over there. So you've got the, the idea of Phil Mickelson getting $200 million uh, as a signing on bonus. What about those who um, turned this and more down? There was um, reports that Tiger Woods was offered circa 800 million, Rory McIlroy 400 million. What would they be feeling like today? We haven't heard from those two stars. And, and the people in charge of this deal, uh, particularly Jay Monaghan, the commissioner, 
who uh, of of the PGA, whose reputation to me appears in tatters today, um, said he hadn't even told uh, them of this deal. So we're still waiting to hear what they think about all of this. And this, in a nutshell, is how he put it. Saudi Arabia, you could argue, has taken control of an entire sport using a bag full of cash. And a similar sentiment with Claire. Here is James Lynch of human rights organisation Fair Square. Is this sports washing, James? Well, yeah. I mean, what 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 it is is a state that sees sport as absolutely central to its kind of soft power strategy. And you know, obviously, that that, that football's been a much more high profile in many ways, sort of part of the Saudi strategy. You know, of, of we know they have Vision 2030, which is this this whole national plan to kind of uh, put take Saudi to a new place, make it less dependent on oil, make it make it somewhere that, that people want to work and live and do business with. Football's been the much more high-profile part of that. Football buys you popularity, gets you a broad appeal, but golf gets you, you know, respectability. And I think at a time when Saudi Arabia is in the grip of a really, really vicious dictatorship, I mean, it was only last week when um, it was announced that anyone who criticises the government on social media is liable for arrest. So to counter that being, you know, what we think about when we think about Saudi Arabia, this is kind of part of normalization, you know, and I think, I think, you know, as you said, in 10 years, people will probably forget about this. And I think the association of Saudi Arabia with golf in this way is going to lead to a kind of normalization of this, you know, pretty brutal state. But what of those who had stayed loyal to the PGA Tour, primarily Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods? Perhaps a sense of betrayal? On Wednesday's Drive Time, this from Rory McIlroy's press conference. It's hard for me to not sit up here and feel somewhat like a sacrificial lamb and, you know, feeling like I've put myself out there and this is what happens. And McIlroy is not disguising his feelings about what he thinks about Live Golf. Hate Live. Like, I hate Live. Like, I, I hope it goes away and I would fully expect that it does. And I think that's where the distinction here is. This is the PJ Tour, the DP World Tour and the PIF. Very different from Live. All I've got, tried to do is protect what the PGA Tour is and what the PGA Tour stands for, and I think it will continue to, to do that. However, McElroy concluded by saying that he thought this merger would ultimately be good for the game of professional golf. Back to our Greg Allen. Did he have any option, Greg, in your opinion, but to, to do a U-turn here? In what way? I mean, how could he have done a U-turn? This thing has been presented in front of him. The only absolute way at the moment that things can change is if the PGA Tour Policy Board votes en masse against what this deal is. Now, the PGA Tour Policy Board will be sold this deal on the, on the basis that this is your futures. Uh, they're sp- speaking to the players. They'll be selling this very, very hard, that there's going to be millions upon millions more going into each prize fund each week, probably on the PGA Tour, which will now become named something else. Uh, and it's going to be very hard for those players to vote against it. Well, certainly the elite players. There seems to be an, a, a disconnect between what the top 75 players possibly in the world will get and then the rest of the field, which will be the bottom 75 players players. Mm. Those were most of the comments of, uh, you know, uh, discontent yesterday at that players meeting at the Canadian Tour were from players beneath the 75 who will benefit hugely from it. And the top 75 or thereabouts, that sort of number, will be the ones which will benefit hugely from lots of money. Tons more money, won't they? Yeah, tons more money. Greg Allen on Drive Time. However, on Friday's Liveline, golfer Padraig Harrington, and in his view, it was not all about the money. 
But there was no player in, in any shape or form say, hey, we need to be playing for bigger prize funds. Like we're, we're all sitting there going, oh my God, the money we're playing, how, how, how did we get to here? So okay. nobody was okay. pushing the tour. Yeah. the tour. The tour could only have done this like any other hostile challenger comes in. They're the incumbent. And the tour obviously got to a situation that, you know, if we let this run any longer, we're actually going mm-hmm. to go into a, 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 a problem area, a, an area that they're going to actually, you know, they, pro- they probably just stretch themselves too, too thin. Now, Porrick Harrington had tweeted that, yes, this was sports washing and, yes, it works. But he went on to say that maybe positive inclusion and trade could improve and change countries. The final line of the tweet said, My own country thought it was acceptable to lock up unmarried mothers as late as 1996. Joe asked him first about sports washing. Is it sports washing? Uh, well, they washing? get two things. Yeah, OK. Well, look, yeah, look, the, the Saudis have bought Newcastle. Nobody stopped watching the Premiership. Yeah, yeah. Everybody still watched that. They, everybody watched the World Cup, you know, so... If, if sports washing unfortunately does work investing mm-hmm. in things like this does work there's i guarantee you there's somebody in newcastle who thinks more positively about saudi arabia now because they own the team so it does work in that sense and saudi arabia are free to invest in what they want to unless somebody comes in and says and says stops them like a un or somebody they're free to do this the fact is that they do have a lot of money mm-hmm. and if they take an interest in something they they can back it for a long time. One of the controversial things I said in the tweet was, you know, as a positive, being included and not excluding somebody tends and trade tends to change them. So okay. I've been going out to the, I've been going out to the Middle East for twenty five years. You can't believe how much that has changed. I, if I had a magic wand and I could go in and say, hey, look, we want you mm-hmm. to adhere to our, you know, to the norms of human rights that what we all consider to be completely normal. I'd wave that wand, but forcing them to do it would only make them backtrack. If somebody said in 25 years, like we look back now at, at the, the mother and baby homes, if somebody said in 25 years, hey, God, look at Saudi Arabia, look what it was like and look what it's now. I don't know if that's acceptable to people. That it would take 25 years for, for, for women to get proper rights. I just, you know, that's right. Just, I don't know if that's acceptable. We just can't wave a magic wand right now. But given, I know you made the mother, the the, the mother and baby homes uh, analogy, and we've nothing to be proud of there as a, as a country. We have, uh, in every sense, tried to atone for it. But the the situation for women in Saudi at the minute is unbelievable. The situation for yeah. for people who are gay is shocking. Isn't it incredible it's, that in this in this day and age that it could be like that? Like nobody can defend that. Nobody could. But. But let's 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 hope that it changes. However, one caller who was less than impressed with Padraig Harrington's analogy was Magella. Padraig, what I want to say to you is that line in your tweet where you said, yes. "My own country thought it was acceptable to lock up unmarried mothers as late as 1996." I would take huge yes. issue with, because number okay. one, my own country. I who are you talking about? Who in your own country? Because nobody in the, our country... I'm talking to the world. I'm talking to the world. Yeah, not, I know not, who I'm you're talking, talking to. Yeah. Okay. yeah, okay. I know who you're talking to, but who are you talking about when you say my own country? Is it the people in your country? Because nobody in this country thought it was acceptable. To lock up... Now, we, we look at that. To lock she, up unmarried so, mothers. So, nobody. 
nobody thought it was acceptable. Most of, now, it? if you want to be specific, Sorry, just, then I, I just specify. Asked you who, 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 who did it? I would say, OK, you answer me. You wrote the tweet. You tell me who you thought did it. But you think everybody thought it was acceptable. Just, no, everybody did not did think it, it was just, acceptable. But it did. Okay. But Magella did happen. Society, society did. Of course it did, and it was shameful. And it was shameful society that it happened. Did this. But yeah, okay. okay. Let, but let, 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 let Paul Let me answer. Go ahead, Paul. Yes. Yeah, I will. Of course. Yeah. The country, the country I come from, had it in it, uh, for a long period of time. Accepted. If somebody knew about this, and I don't know who knew about it, but people knew about this, society knew about that and they let it happen i didn't mean to suggest in any sense the word and obviously it's a very short form that you can't do mm -hmm. didn't mean to suggest that people agreed with it mm -hmm. so society let this happen not everybody I, in society knew about it. oh wait 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 i just finished i was i was years of age let's say through the 80s right i didn't know this mm. happened god forbid i i i profited from the indentured slavery that those women went through Imagine you use one of those hotels. Like, come on. Society was terrible to let that happen. If you knew... And Podrick Harrington went on to say that he didn't mean to offend Magella or indeed others and that Twitter could be a tricky medium. Thank God we've come away from yeah, that. Here, Thank here. God here, here. those were the bad old days. But, but, but it's just in a tweet that comes across that way. OK, well, Podrick is... Well, okay. And for well, international, well, saying... international readers, yeah. Podrick, you know, that they yeah. may think well, that, well, that in, a in a legislative way it was acceptable up to 1996. That must be made clear that that's not what you meant. Do you know what I mean? The language was, was careless, if, if you don't mind me saying so. If you don't mind me saying so. I think the politicians did accept it. I think the powers accepted it. Was it was never acceptable to lock up unmarried no, yeah, mothers in the well, 90s. The last, oh, the last Magdalene laundry closed in 1996, thank God. But, okay. it, you know, it's just, to me, it's just what I would find. Well, I, just said, I would find it a little bit offensive. I can fully agree that you find it offensive the way you're interpreting the tweet. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one that would interpret it that way now. And I agree that you can interpret it that way. And that's the problem with Twitter and writing something down. If you don't put everything yeah. in, okay. people okay. see that. Yeah. Podrick Harrington, Magella and Joe all on Liveline yesterday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Arena, you need only hear the voice. I went to college for about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Figuratively speaking. And uh, uh, I was uh, in the theatre department and I studied uh, voice development and voice diction. And I had a really terrific professor who knew exactly how to put a voice on a person. And that's where my voice began to be my voice. And what a voice. And that is, of course, Morgan Freeman. And he talked to Sean on Tuesday about a whole host of things, but most especially his love of the blues, because he will be the MC for the Delta Blues Project with our own RTE concert orchestra, featuring the music of legends like Robert Johnson, John Lee Hooker and B.B. King. And Morgan Freeman told Sean about growing up in the home of the blues, Mississippi. Morgan, you were born in the Deep South and you can trace your family's history back to that area, to the area, in fact, where blues music itself was born. 
Uh, actually, my, my family history is rooted primarily in Mississippi. You know, the two arms of my family are uh, both rooted in Mississippi. One's black, the other one is white-based. My mother's side of the family were, are, um, mulatto. As my great-great-grandfather was white and uh, married my great-great-grandmother, who was black, in Mississippi. These things did happen in the 1800s. Voila. Let's go back to, to the 1937 and, and the Mississippi area that you were born into. What sort of society was that? I spent most of my formative years in Mississippi. It was a segregated society, but I had a good childhood, really good childhood. Great teachers, um, parenting, all that was all any kid would need to grow up. Although you didn't meet your mother properly until you were seven and a half, eight years old. Six, six and a half, right. I, I knew her the minute I saw her, but yeah, I was raised up until then by my paternal grandmother. And he was raised in famed blues singer Robert Johnson territory. But the whole selling your soul at the crossroads to the devil for the music, I know. Selling your soul to the devil to play. You know, blues is actually called the devil's music by the clergy. It isn't. The blues is merely lament. You know, everybody's singing the blues. They're singing about how sad they are that their woman left or they're on the streets, don't have money, don't have a job. That it's all personal lament for the most part. B.B. King. Really gone. I'll be back on my feet someday. (laughs) Everything that stems from the blues, anything, rock and roll, pop, pop music, jazz, all have some connection to Delta blues, believe it or not. Robert Johnson and before that Morgan Freeman all on arena with Ryan how to find the one and on first dates Ireland in the restaurant you might be lingering over your amuse-bouche to make the moment last or horsing through the spuds just to get out of there it really can go either way and the matchmaking women behind the programme spilled the beans we give you Carla Zambra and Claire Ridge
Now, they told Ryan that they are having difficulty getting men over 30 to take part. In fact, 33 appears to be something of a cut-off. But this texter had a theory, one which I might add was very quickly rebutted. I love first dates as a text, but I think the ladies have a very high opinion of what type of man they want. And that is what puts normal 33 plus, that is to say, men off. The guys are lovely, but the girls want a guy way out of their league. So we leave it there. Thank you very much for the explanation. Both waving. That is so not the case. It's actually the opposite. The opposite. Complete. That the men have a higher opinion of themselves. Oh, my God. Yes. The lists of requirements are often, you know, excessive, Ryan. And uh, <laughs> the women are much more, I want to meet a nice person. Yeah. Yes. It's actually nearly sad. Like I was speaking to an amazing woman the other day. She was incredible. And, you know, I we, we go through, you know, do you have any kind of preference in terms of looks? And she was like, no. She was like, I just want someone who'll be nice to me. Oh, and no. that kind of kicks you because yeah. you're like, hey, you know, obviously she's had such a traumatic or, a, you know, bad dating history that... Nice. That that's her prerequisite. Oh, Whereas I was speaking, bar. yeah. So I was speaking to a guy before that, and I was, oh, I like a nice blonde. I like if she's petite. I like, and the lit. So he had a list. Whereas this woman that I spoke to was like, nice to do me. Just a decent person. Now, when you're in the restaurant, you won't be bothered by any pesky camera crew leaning over your table to get a good shot. Oh no, when you're there, you're there. But there are, of course, cameras all over the restaurant, and you are being watched by the production team from the gallery. It's like the NASA control room, basically. Yeah. So <laughs> the screens everywhere. We can see every single part of the That's restaurant. Great. So, so at the end, you can you can kind of take that to its logical conclusion. Talk about we have liftoff <laughs> or Houston, we have a problem. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So that is something that you see. You can kind of you'll you'll be watching and you're everybody's going. Oh, we're getting invested. The date is going well, and then sometimes you just see there's this shift. And like that, Houston, we have a problem and you're kind of going, what just happened Okay, now? let's let's, let's talk. Oh, the cruelty. Don't blame it on the sunshine. Don't blame it on the boogie. Maybe blame it on the chemistry. I suppose we can't mitigate, Ryan, for the spark. You know what I mean? We can yeah. come up with these people match and they've got commonality about lots of things. And we do put a lot of time and effort into that, like where they're at in their lives, what their interests are, you know, what they want from the experience. But like we really can't mitigate for that. So and it's all well for me anyway. It's often the ones that you're like, this is going to be amazing. They're going to love each other. (laughs) It's just going to be like we're going to the wedding next year. And 10 minutes in, you're just like, oh, my God, what is happening? And you can see, like Carla said, you can actually see a moment where it's. It turns. Yeah. Is there? Yeah. Is it, does it turn on anything? Is there a common, a common Sometimes point? Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes you kind of go, you go, oh, you can just see a shift in the body language and you're going, what did he or what yes. did she just say? Somebody clicked a switch. That has, yeah. And it's, it's then, you know, shut down. You can yeah. see kind of the light go out of the eyes and then all of a sudden it's into kind of business mode and you're going, all right, this is, because often we will ask them as well, how will we know if the date is going well? Yes. And they'll say, oh, I'll touch my hair yeah, or yeah, I'll be yeah. smiling or I'll be looking at her or and or somebody will say, um, I remember I had a dater saying, um, if it's not going well, I'll probably talk about the weather. And <laughs> after a couple of minutes, he started talking about the weather and I was yeah. going, no, it's yeah. no. Yeah. But he brought it back because at the end then he was like, no, I actually really would like to see her again. And I was like, but you were talking about the weather. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was your tell. <laughs> that yeah. was your tell. I was going, no. We do ask them for their tell. But their dating philosophy in a nutshell. There's a lid for every pot. And I think your first dates, <laughs> there's a lid for every pot. <laughs> there's a lid for every pot.
the First Aids Ireland team with Ryan. Now Lids and Potts or Julie J and Fred Cook. They are both comedians. They're touring a show about their relationship. They spoke to Brendan and this is how they met. Would stalked be the word? No, Brendan, too strong a verb. Okay. We did we did a gig in Knoll and Fred, you were giving me a lift home and then I think Fred was just trying to get me out of his car and he said, listen, if you're ever passing through Galway, let me know. Which actually, in and of itself, is such a funny way to phrase it because whoever is passing <laughs> through Galway, like maybe it's kind of a destination, like maybe if you're on your way to Aaron Moore or something. But I, I think most people would have just taken it as it was just something he was saying oh, at the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. very literal, Brendan. Okay. This is the thing. So then we went. So then I was in Galway a couple of weeks later, and we went on a lovely lunch date, didn't we, Fred? Did yeah, on Chop Street, of course, yeah. And then I texted Fred after and had a lovely time, and then Fred responded with a thumbs up. A thumbs up, up, like this is the relationship that should never have happened. And then I really tried to keep the conversation going because I responded to the, the, I mean, the thumbs up is basically flipping the birdie at someone, let's face it. But I then asked Fred a question and it took you two weeks to get back. Yeah. But you did get back and then after that, the rest of it is history. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We met up on Tinder as well, didn't we? Like. Didn't beat on. Oh, you, right, hang on, completely separately yeah. to this. We were still on Tinder after after that moment. So okay, we're breaking up. I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. Okay, so, so hang we on were, a minute. We I think we could both. He, he gave you he gave you a thumbs up. Then didn't yeah. get back to you for two weeks. He was still on Tinder. Now, Fred, Fair play to you, Julie. Fred, though you didn't you didn't give up. I'm very forgiving, but Fred. Destiny. Now, Julie J has spent ten years of her life being a teacher, which you might be able to tell. Even if people can't see the body language, they're picking it up, which is that, Julie, you're you're leading this uh, affair, obviously. And then now and again, you kind of you you <laughs> look at Fred and almost give him the nod that, Fred, you can talk now. <laughs> Fred, no. Fred, would that be... Like, oh, yeah. Teacher's got... She, Julie always says herself, she's got a, a bit of a whack of a teacher about her. Do you well, know yeah, what I mean? Like, I which used is to be teacher. Yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I probably am. That is something, Fred, in your defence. Like, he does have to put up with that, that I probably am a bit of a moon tour at home. Yeah. But then even at Christmas, I was laughing because I was saying to Fred, there's a fine line between hanging out with your in-laws and a parent-teacher meeting. So I just found myself <laughs> saying... Oh, but I, do you remember at one point I was saying to your mum, Fred, I was like, Mary, he's a lovely fella. He'd do anything <laughs> yes, for you, right. but he's just not giving me 100%. Like, yeah. I'm giving him the feedback, but it's up to him now. So I do just, unfortunately, I do kind of have those moon tourisms, I think. It does for me. And this really was a no-holds-barred interview because they talked about their three-year-old with whom they share the bed. Come here, can I ask a, a, an awkward question? How is the intimacy with Ted still in the bed? Oh, it's tricky. Because obviously when you're initially courting, you know yourself, it's all kind of like passion and Cirque du Soleil stuff and the show Merlapa. Yeah, and now, yeah. I mean, especially when you're acting... You see, you're calling it the show Merlapa. That's a passion killer for me straight away. Fred, fake and Tom, Tasha and Tom, Dolgary and Shomer Lama. I guess I'm Roddy Yenov. I just write it up on the whiteboard. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> Nobody will ever do it again in the country now with these images in their I head. I just put up the data, I put up our learning objective and we're good to go. But I guess... Now you know, it's like we're having, we're making love in the Moke and Elock. We would be making love <laughs> in a conditional tense. There's an excuse now. <laughs> All of that being said, they are expecting another baby. So they got there.
like even when you are actively trying to get pregnant and it's something that I do discuss a bit it's just a different vibe to what it was in the beginning of the relationship you know you kind of say listen this morning okay so you kind of go into you know you go into Fred and you say look Fred I know this morning we were both googling family law solicitors but I'm ovulating for 10 more minutes so (laughs) would you mind pausing the Super Mario there and let's go and do what lovers do and Fred's always like well should I turn it off completely I'm like I wouldn't turn it off completely (laughs) I think a pause a pause would be sufficient Fred Cook and Julie J with Brendan and yesterday Justin McCarthy Tracy Clifford and questions not usually heard on Morning Ireland Have you got your feather boa ready for tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) I'm being told I have to wear one all right Now are we in for a are we in for a sex symbol screamathon at Slane? Oh you can bet your bottom dollar That is it from this week's playback Thank you for listening Talk to you next week